The Strophes of Omar Khayyam, translated from the Persian by John Leslie Garner, with an introduction and notes. Milwaukee, The Corbett and Skidmore Company, 1888. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Algy Pug. Quod usutuliter utopist, economist, sansimonist, et autre qui lui demanderont à quoi cela rime, il répondra Le premier vers rime avec le second, qu'on la rime n'est pas mauvaise, et ainsi de suite. Théophile Gautier. Introduction. Omar Khayyam was born in the first half of the eleventh century of our era at Naishapur, a small town in the province of Khorasan, a place which modern travellers describe as singularly uninteresting, but which at that time was of no little importance. The details which we possess of his life are exceedingly meagre, but doubtless true. His boyhood was entirely uneventful. He completed his studies at the Madrasa of Naishapur, an institution celebrated for the number of noted men who had there received their education, in the year 1042. While at school, his two most intimate friends were Nizam ul Mulk and Hassan Sabbah, both of whom afterwards became celebrated in their country's history. One day, little imagining the influence it was destined to have on their careers, they jokingly entered into a boyish compact. According to the terms of this agreement, the one who should be most highly favoured by fortune was to interest himself in the advancement of his comrades. Their biographers relate that it had the effect of stimulating their zeal, each applying himself to his studies most assiduously. It was not long before the treaty was put to the test, for Nizam ul Mulk was called to a position in the government, and his companions immediately demanded the fulfilment of their oath. Hassan Sabah, ambitious, jealous, and crafty, was given a place at court, while Omar, who seems to have been of a studious and retiring disposition, was, in accordance with his request, made chief of his village. Living quietly at Naishapur, he pursued his favourite studies of philosophy, mathematics, and poetry, and became a philosopher, a sceptic, and a fatalist. Following the custom of Persian poets, he adopted a takhulus, or poetical name, choosing that of Khayyam, an appellation suggested by the trade of his father, which was that of a tent-maker. His countrymen say that his extreme modesty prevented him from assuming a more pretentious name, the Oriental poets, as a rule, sharing the proverbial modesty of their class. Thus, Firdusi, the celestial, Hafith, the preserver, Sadi, the felicitous. The chroniclers relate that Omar was fond of spending the evening on the terrace before his house in company with his friends, surrounded by musicians and drinking wine, which was presented in turn to all the symposiasts by the saki or cupbearer, a custom which still prevails in the East. He seems to have passed through those days with the indolence and indifference of a god. Places of honour were offered him by the government but he preferred to spend his time in a vain search for some rhyme for the reason of things, although he well knew that his aim was unattainable. His death occurred in the year 1123 of the Christian era. 
The various manuscripts, the texts used in this translation were Winfield's, Nicolas, and the lithographed editions of Lucknow, contain more than a thousand quatrains ascribed to Omar, although in this number there is constant repetition of ideas expressed in slightly varying diction. It is impossible to tell how many of these are spurious, for it is highly probable that many have crept into later editions, having been added by overzealous copyists unable to accept Omar's philosophy, or by readers who scribbled antagonistic strophes on the margins of their copies, which afterwards found their way into the text. This supposition is supported by the fact that in the larger collections contradictory stanzas often are found on the same page. The Rubaiyat, a poetic form in great favour in the East, seems peculiarly suited to Omar's thoughts. In the original, the first, second and fourth lines rhyme, although all four verses may do so, and some twenty-four different metres are in use. The only respect in which the form of the translation agrees with the Persian is in leaving the third line blank. It is a difficult question to decide what was Omar's real philosophy. He probably suffered periodic attacks of metaphysics with accompanying changes in his beliefs. But, unfortunately, the arbitrary arrangement of the original, which is in accordance with the alphabetical order of rhymes, offers no clue to the chronological sequence or development of his ideas. It is well-nigh impossible for an Occidental to accept the mystic interpretation of Monsieur Nicolas, and, judging by his notes, it seems as if he too had grave misgivings regarding poor Omar's character. However, while the old tent-maker, doubtless, was human, it is not likely that he was past redemption. He drank wine as he sang of it, and it is probable that his morals were little, if any, in advance of his age and country. But his vices go hand in hand with great virtues. Throughout his rubaiyat there breathes a spirit of charity and toleration towards his opponents, and an independence in thought, unusual in his time, and in an oriental land. A sceptic regarding the creeds prevalent, he tore down, but does not seem to have supplanted with anything better. He recognised the weakness of the human intellect when struggling with the questions of human destiny, at the same time regarding that destiny as implacable, a belief formulated throughout his writings in an Eastern fatalism. Inasmuch as there is a vein of pantheism in his poems, he may be regarded as a Sufi, but his Sufism is not the kind which the professors of the creed would have us believe, and his wine, woman and song are doubtless no less real than were the material inspirations of Anacreon, Horace and Beranger. While Omar's fatalism and indifference may to many seem pernicious, thrusting themselves forward in such a manner that they cannot be overlooked, the effect of the whole is, as Mr. Fitzgerald says, more apt to move sorrow than anger towards the old tent-maker. Omar, in the twelfth century, belonged to the class of thinkers which includes the agnostic of today. Recognising the intenability of the doctrines taught by the various Mohammedan sects, he did not refrain from assailing them with ridicule. He seems to have thought, with a modern French writer, that the value of a religion depends upon its harmony, more or less complete, with the precepts taught by the reason, and with the facts established by science. Les religions de l'extrême Orient, Léon de Rosny, 1886 By his contemporaries, he was regarded as a free thinker and a scoffer, 
and it was not until long after his death, probably when the examples furnished by his way of living had ceased, that the Sufis discovered the deep spiritual meaning of his Bacchanalian verses. That they did make this discovery, however, need not surprise us, for the Oriental mind, like the Oriental languages, as Mr. Huxley has remarked, is exceedingly subtle, and the Sufi of the East, as an expounder of the obscure, is no less adroit than the theologian of the West. Si la foi vient de Dieu, c'est aussi de lui que vient la raison, was doubtless one of the articles of Omar's creed, whatever his religion may have been, for he never tired of attacking the unreasonable and absurd. He felt a contempt for hollow ceremonial, and he scorned hypocrisy and deceit. Clemency and generosity, not vengeance and wrath, were worthy of the divine. Infinite mercy was incompatible with the Mohammedan doctrine of future punishments, while infinite power was opposed to the more modern theory of free will. The shortness and uncertainty of life and the instability of earthly affairs were ever in his thoughts. His appreciation of the unavoidable separation from things mundane, and the fewness of his wants, led him to disregard wealth and honours. Frequently a vein of pessimism crops out in his writings, but it is of a healthy, aggressive sort, very different from the article which the pseudo-pessimists of the day, in their solemn seasons of reflection upon their individual ills, are wont to style truth. Omar was a precursor of Schopenhauer, rather than of Leopardi. In the selections which follow, accuracy of translation was the principal aim. The collection might have been made much larger, but it was deemed inadvisable, as Omar's themes are not many, and the ever-recurring wine, rose and nightingale are somewhat cloying to Occidental senses. The great questions of human life are of all times and of all ages, and although Omar never tired of struggling with them, he discovered nothing new, and, at last, feeling that death alone was certain, he resigned the task in despair, exclaiming to his pupil, Nizami, I shall soon be buried where the north wind will strew roses over my grave. And Nizami wondered greatly at the words, for in the Koran it is written that no man knoweth where he shall be buried. But, a few years later, returning to Neshapur, to visit the last resting place of his master, he found it close beside a garden wall, and he noticed that the blossoms had fallen from the spreading branches, and completely hidden the tomb from view. End of Introduction